Welcome to the Evolutionary Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Castles, PhD. Raising good humans is hard. We all worry about if we're doing it best, and sometimes we don't even know how to approach certain things. This is especially true when we start touching on topics we may not have experience with, like racism. Many of us think that we can just raise kids who aren't racist and and that's going to be good enough, but it's not. We hopefully know we need to actively work to change the ingrained racism in our society. Children can lead the way on that if we help them get there. But this is where help is needed. And I was thrilled to be able to speak to educator and author Britt Hawthorne about her new book, Raising Anti-Racist Children. I do believe she's the help we need to change the world one child at a time. I am thrilled to have with me today Britt Hawthorne. She is the author of Raising Anti-Racist Children, A Practical Parenting Guide. Britt is a Black, biracial mama, teacher, author, and anti-bias and anti-racist facilitator. She partners with caregivers, educators, and families to raise the next generation of anti-racist children. Together with her beloved partner, she's raising her children to become empathic, critical thinkers, embracing justice and activism. Her days are filled with coffee, teaching, and joy. Thank you for being here, and I feel you on that coffee. I don't know. It's not a full day if I haven't had at least five cups, so it's... (laughs) Absolutely. Cheers to that, and thank you so much for having me. It is so good. And this is such an important topic for families. And I think especially because so many families I know that listen have younger children. So I think they're really, this is like a a formative time to really start thinking about these issues. And we are going to talk about many of the big concepts in your new book, Raising Anti-Racist Children. But before we dive into it, I, I always like to ask, what prompted you to get to the stage to write this book? What, what was the genesis of this book for you? Yeah, um, I will say that the kind of origin story of this book is, is I opened the book with the story of our youngest child, Kobe, who at the time was four years old. Um, and professionally, I was a classroom teacher. I was teaching in a public Montessori school, working with fourth, fifth, and sixth graders. And my two children were attending the same school. And so Kobe, our four-year-old, was attending all-day school, um, all-day preschool or children's house, as we call it in Montessori. And he had a teacher, long story short, that had told him to shut up. And so when we had a very critical conversation with the teachers, right, I'm like holding all of these different identities at this time, both classroom teacher, co-teacher, right, to my co-workers, um, but also mom to Kobe, and really trying to figure out what is our best way forward. When I had told the teachers, I said, hey, Kobe had shared that you had told him to shut up, and I just want some context around that. And when the teacher just, without skipping a beat, said yes, didn't deny it, didn't look surprised, didn't look what I was hoping for her to look was remorseful, right? I knew that there was a bigger problem. And so as we were talking through it, and I had some other co-teachers with me as well, um, and we were reiterating, you know, it is never okay to tell a child, shut up. Uh, my anti-racist self started to think about the characters at play. So who in the story, you know, who's all involved in the story other than Kobe? And so if Kobe is talking, he must be talking to someone. 
And so I asked, I said, well, who was Kobe talking to? And it was his best friend, a blonde haired, blue eyed boy, just moved back from France. Um, And they were chatting and it was during nap time. And I said, well, did you tell Noah to shut up? Not because I believe that Noah or any child needs to be told shut up, but I was trying to drive home a point. And when she at that time then looked shocked and said, no, I said, and this is the problem. And it's a problem not only for her as a teacher, but it was also a problem that now Kobe experienced educational racism, but so did Noah. Noah witnessed it. And when we start to think about how young children learn prejudice, how young children can both experience, but also witness racism at four years old, we also have to ask ourselves, how are our children rationalizing this behavior from a trusted adult Right. Kobe and Noah most certainly probably both felt like, well, the teacher is right. What the teacher says, what the teacher does at four years old is right. And for me then to have to come in and say, that was not right. It should have never happened. And I'm so sorry that it happened to you. So from that point, it was the straw that broke the camel's back. We decided to homeschool our children. And so as I was homeschooling our children, I also started a consulting firm supporting teachers and becoming anti-racist educators to really understand what is racism, how it can show up in our classrooms, but most importantly, how do we combat it on a teacher level? And then how do we also support our learners to advocate against it as well? Um, And so as I was sharing and I was working with teachers, I started working with other parents and other caregivers. Um, And that is really the story of the book that I wanted to create something that was gonna be really accessible for folks, something that they could pick up um, and they can come back to time and time again, and it can grow with their family. And what I will say, I love just right now, I'll jump ahead with the book here is all the different practical guides to it. Cause it feels like you can take it a chapter at a time and really work through stuff, but then come back to it later, you know, or, or stick with one area. Cause there are larger areas within the book and just say, I need to focus on this first. It doesn't feel overwhelming. Like I, you've got to tackle it all at once and read it all at once and be like, I'm going to become the best anti-racist parent. It really is like a, a lovely way to like, okay, I can do this. It is, there are the steps there that make it feel approachable. I'm so glad that you said that. And, you know, it's something that I have to even remind myself too, right. Is that my children will be my baby forever right? Like they will be our babies forever. And so we don't have to feel rushed. We don't have to feel like we've either have started too late, right? That's kind of a concern I'll hear from caregivers. What if my child is five or 10 or 15 or even 25, right? It's never too early to start, but it's also never too late to show up either. And so I wanted something for everyone in that book, which is also I knew I couldn't do it alone. I invited 15 other um, contributing authors into the book, folks that I'm listening and learning to as well, for them to share, like, what does anti-racist parenting look like for you in your home? Um, And for some of the folks, they have children and some folks don't have children, but they have children in their lives, right? Being a godparent, being an aunt, being an uncle. And so what does that look like? Um, And so that was really important. Well, And I'm glad you just mentioned the whole being an anti-racist parent, because it kind of segues into one of the things I I think needs to be discussed, which is this distinction between not being racist 
and being anti-racist. And I know I've spoken to and heard a lot of families, whether social media, whether working with them, where there really seems to be a belief, especially amongst white parents, that not being racist is enough. That that is, that's the goal. No, I'm raising my children not to be racist. I don't need to go above and beyond. There's no, there's nothing more than that. And I mean, obviously the book covers it very well, but I'd like to get it for you to explain to people listening why that's not the case. What is the distinction here between not being racist and being anti-racist? And why is that so important to our parenting to, to veer towards the anti-racism as opposed to the not being racist? Yeah, and that's a really great question to ask and really kind of start the conversation with because being non-racist and being anti-racist, I, I like for folks kind of to visualize a continuum right? And to kind of place themselves on this continuum. Because what I don't want anyone to think about are these are two separate boxes that we're, that we put ourselves into, right? I want us to really move away from any kind of binary thinking of good or bad or anti-racist or non-racist. And really, whenever we were in that, on that continuum of non-racist, what, what I experience from folks and what I hear when folks tell me that is that, gosh, you have the beliefs, you have the values, you have the mindset to say that I want there to be equal outcomes for people, right? Oftentimes we call that equality of that I can look at data and the data is going to have equal outcomes regardless of race. But today in the United States, we don't have equal outcomes based on race, right? In fact, race can be one of our biggest predictors of outcomes in the United States, whether you're looking at life expectancy or my wheelhouse, things that my bread and butter is school. So I love education, all things education, that I could show folks almost in any state in the United States in District of Columbia, I could show them a bar graph. And at the bottom of the bar graph, it's going to be blank. And I can ask them to fill in that ascending or descending bar graph and say, based on racial identities, I want you to fill in this bar graph for our attendance rate or our graduation rate or our college acceptance rate. Maybe minus one or two folks are going to get it right. So what we're knowing right now is that we live in a society in which we all have a racialized body. And we have an outcome based off of that. Being an anti-racist says not only do I have the belief, right, those values, the belief, the mindset saying that I do want there to be equal outcomes, but I start to move along that continuum towards action. Okay, so then what am I going to do about it? Now that I know that information, what am I going to do about it? And anti-racism propels us into this, this section on that continuum that says, I'm going to actively dismantle racism, both by building awareness of what is it. So that's something else we have to talk about. What is racism? And then once I'm able to identify all the ways that racism operates in our society, what's my particular role in dismantling that? That's a fantastic way to put it. And I think it's, again, just to your credit here, it doesn't feel overwhelming either, right? If you talk about it as a continuum, People can start those steps and just take, you know, move an inch over at the beginning and start your way. It doesn't have to be that you go from point A to point Z 
right away. And I know I've just made it clear that I'm Canadian, but that is, um, you know, as we go through there, point A, point Z is what it is. And you, I, I think that helps take away the fear for parents to approach it. And so as you just said, actually, I had a bunch of terms I actually wanted us to kind of go through at the beginning to kind of define for people because I think it's important. But you mentioned the first one, which is racism. And perhaps I'll let you take the lead on that because I'll admit that was not on my list. So I will yes. own that, you know, omission quite glaringly. <laughs> but how is it defined for you here? Yes. Yes. So in the book and in the work that I do, the definition that I use for racism with adults, it's going to be a system of advantage based on race where white people are advantaged and people of the global majority are disadvantaged. So that's the definition that I'm going to use with adults. Then in the book, I move us through a series of definitions that we can use with our children that are going to be developmentally appropriate. You know, the same way that the way um, I was just working with our nine-year-old and he's working on um, math right now. And, and, and it was so interesting. I'm like, oh, this is an interesting way that I think that it's one of those fill in the blanks where they have a sentence and they have to put the word in it. I said, I think this question here is factors, but I would have defined factors a little bit different but I'm not nine. So I'm like, let's go to the glossary and figure it out that we have to also think about racism and use developmentally appropriate um, definitions for our children that are going to be rooted in critical thinking and also blaming of systems. So I, wanna, I want our listeners to hear that, that when we're thinking and talking and discussing racism with children, we really want there to be definitions and conversations that's rooted in critical thinking so a system of an advantage based on race doesn't truly support critical thinking, but we're adults, right? And we can draw um, conclusions in a, in a way that a nine-year-old or a five-year-old might not. With young children, then I will use a definition that says personal prejudice plus the systemic misuse and abuse of power by institutions. That's a much wordier definition I tr but trust me, your child can handle it because when we break it down and then we tell the story of Mrs. Rosa Parks, then we can say, what was the personal prejudice, right? We want to go slow with this work. So what was the personal prejudice? And we can say, oh, the bus driver, the bus driver had a personal prejudice against Mrs. Parks. And what was the systemic misuse and abuse by, of, um, of power by institutions? And then there, that's where we get a lot of critical thinking children. And we have to support their critical thinking, right? So, ooh, I wonder, was it the law? Did the law support segregation and racism and discrimination? Yeah. How about the bus company? Did the bus company also have rules that supported that? How about the police when they showed up and then arrested Mrs. Parks? Did that support it? Right. So then we start to have a more holistic understanding of the ways that racism can operate rather than it's one mean person against another mean person, right? I love that. And I do love because the systemic issue of it is, I think, so critical because when you just said one mean person against another mean person, you're shutting down so much understanding of what underlies even that one mean person's view, right? As to why there might be the personal prejudice is they have grown up in systems that have allowed that to to foster and grow within themselves there. So that brings me to the other, We, you mentioned the um, 
pardon me, you mentioned the uh, privileges, whoa, can't remember what, of everything, of the white, white minority, really. Um, so I want to bring up the term white supremacy. Because that's something you also identify, and I know people get very, very upset about hearing this. And it is, I don't, I hope if you're listening and you're feeling upset about thinking of the idea of white supremacy, that you are able to just sit back for a moment, pause if you need to, get a coffee, whatever it is. It is real. Uh, and it's something that is very much in existence in a variety of ways. And it's these four ways that I want to talk about because I still think so many people hear it and think of, you know, neo-Nazism, which is all still very around, but that's the idea of it is, again, personal, not systemic. And you've identified four different ways that white supremacy operates in our society. There is the internalized, there's the interpersonal, the institutional, and the structural. Are you able to give us as, as brief as possible, but obviously it's not gonna be brief because there's a lot, but an understanding of what we mean when we talk about white supremacy in those contexts? Yes, um, so those are really the four domains that when you think about oppression, all oppression exists within those four domains that you just mentioned. So whether it's white supremacy, and in the book I talk about how I oftentimes will refer to it as white domination, as a, as a more accurate way when working with children to understand how whiteness has been constructed to both wound and exclude, but also to literally dominate land, languages, culture, and people. And so... For oppression, it, so it could be white supremacy, but it also could be the patriarchy, right? It could be any form of oppression will happen in these four domains. When we think about those four domains, when we think about interpersonal, that is oftentimes the number one way that we both will learn about a form of oppression, but that's also the only way that we know how to analyze that form of oppression. And that is very dangerous. Interpersonal then is when we talk about that one-on-one -on -one situation. We're watching the news and we hear about a horrific hate crime, or we hear about um, a, a fight that happened at the school between one student and another student, and they say that it was racially motivated. That's an interpersonal interaction. However, the other interactions when we think of institutionals, the way that it, racism, in this case, we're talking about racism. So the way that racism exists and live and thrive within laws. So whether that is the segregation, the allowing of segregation of students, that can be students segregated by race. But we've also had um, students segregated by ability. Right, which is why we had to have the force integration with students with disability in classroom. It can be students segregated by language. Um, at one point in time, we thought it was best that children who were bilingual had to be segregated, right, or, or particularly if it was bilingual with certain languages, right, they had to be segregated and not integrated into classrooms. So all of that is through our laws, it's through our policies and rules that we have. Then we have internalized. This is where people of the marginalized community, so people of the global majority, so what, how we now believe the lies about us. We have now picked up those lies, right? I love how Dr. Kira Banks calls it appropriated oppression. We've now appropriated an oppression that was given to us and we now own it. Um, within the Asian community, oftentimes we'll talk about the model minority myth. 
right? That's an internalized view. And then we talk about how the model minority myth is so damaging and harmful because it does not allow for there to be the full creativity of a person, right? It then boxes them in and says, this is who you're supposed to be or have to be. And it limits their individuality. And then ideological is the hardest one to um, analyze. And oftentimes I recommend analyzing ideological racism with children who are going to be ninth grade and above. Ideological racism is our cultural racism. Here in the United States, in the South, in some states, they had less laws that regulated uh, segregation. They had less Jim Crow laws. They had less black codes than other states. And so when I work with teachers, I always ask, well, why is that? You know, they, they sit and they think, they're like, hmm, I don't know, because I thought it would have been more laws. And it's because when something becomes cultural, it has now become normalized. And ideological racism, this is a phrase I'll hear when, from folks who, who can subscribe to ideological racism. They'll say, but isn't oppression just natural to humans, right? Or isn't racism just natural? Haven't we always had it, right? And that's a clear misunderstanding that of, of what oppression, how oppression and racism work, right? They are socially and politically and economically constructed. They've been created over time through laws and policies and then maintained by those people empowered to uphold those laws and policies. Once we have all of that clarity, then to me, the fun stuff starts to happen because now we're like, oh, what laws then are unjust and what laws are just? How can then we maintain justice through laws and policies? Like, how do we actually create that culture? So for me, that's that's really precious work, but it's also really fun work. It's I would almost want to be like, can we just ignore the rest of my questions and get into talking about that? That's kind of where I feel like going. It's funny though, you mentioned the um, internalized racism and I still remember a finding from when I was doing my PhD and there was work on how we see in-group, out-group and, and how we value people. And there was a study then on race with children, very young children. And it was most, um, not most, but most children prefer looking at a face of someone of their own race. That's their most valued. But what was fascinating to me, and we're talking about, you know, kind of preschool age here. We're not talking baby babies. We're, you know, preschool age. But what happened is I, the finding that in um, not all, but many people of the global majority, so it was specific to, I believe, Black and Native uh, American, and I may be wrong on exactly all the groups, but they didn't prefer their own. They still valued the white face more than someone of their own ethnicity, race, et cetera. And it felt heartbreaking because it was just immediately at such a young age, they knew the differential in power that implicitly had just been, whether or not they could vocalize it, whether or not they had words for it, I don't know. But in looking at it, they knew who was dominant, going back to that word you use. And it was um, it was very telling, I think, to speak about these structural issues that are in place that then lead to that internalization of things. So it's, um, 
it's certainly there and certainly there with kids. Cause I always hear people say, Oh no, kids aren't racist. It, you know, they, they can't be. And there, I don't think, you know, outside of active teaching, they're inherently that interpersonal racist without, you know, with a malicious motive, but they certainly have internalized racist ideas. Is that fair to say that because they grow up in our society, it's there? A hundred percent. We live in a racist society. And so through the messaging that children receive, and we cannot downplay how strong media is present in our children's lives, even the best of us that try to limit screen time for our children, even when we do our best work of saying, okay, you can watch only, you know, these television shows, we forget about how much media a child is experiencing from a a young age, whether they're on the school bus, whether they're on the city bus, they're in the car with us, and they're looking at billboards, right? You stop at a laundromat, and they have the news that it's playing um, on there, right? You go out to eat, and they might have um, in the bar, they have TVs that are playing. You go to the doctor's office, and they're exposed to books in the waiting area. So we forget about how much media a child takes in, right? It is, it is the strongest institution in their life, and so in the book, I have um, ways that you can both choose books with children, but also how you can together with your young child, analyze media with them as well. But I think that's very fair to say. And within that both internalized and interpersonal form of racism, there's so much work you can do with your child about talking about stereotypes. Children as young as five years old can both understand what are stereotypes, but start to analyze them. Um, children right around nine to 10 years old, you can start discussing microaggressions, right? Assumptions that you had about a person, and then you actually acted on that assumption um, with a child. But you can then also talk about repair. What happens when you committed, when you commit a microaggression? And also what happens if someone um, said something to you, right? Then how, how do we at 9, 10 tell our children, you can say, you know what? I didn't, I didn't like that you said that. And this is why. And I don't want you to say it again. Simple as that, right? So this is, there's so much work that we can do with our young children. Um, and in school, we have teachers that are doing incredible work in the field every single day. And yet we can't wait on them to do all of the work. It's it's another reason why I I wrote the book is because I'm working with teachers and they have 20, 25, 30, 40 kids sometimes in a classroom that are coming from various backgrounds, right? They've picked up a ton of different ideas. And within one hour, it's like, wow, there's so much that I have to unpack. And I'm just trying to get through our science lesson. I'm just trying to teach sink and float. That's it, right? And so and so as caregivers, it's how do we help our children? Um, can, I, can I tell a quick story? Absolutely, okay. please do. I can tell a super quick story. Um, and this is not, has nothing to do with race or racism, but kind of back to your question of the importance between being non-racist and anti-racist. And I'm raising boys. And I'm really working on them to um, be incredible supporters of girls, of women, but of non-binary and trans folks, right, to be advocates for. And so our work in our home 
that I am not by any means an expert. Um, so take this story with a grain of salt. It's a mama sharing a story. But every year for the last couple of years, we've been taking a growing into your body puberty workshop with our youngest, Kobe. And in that workshop, an expert, not me, leads it. And you take it with your child and they go through the ways that your body is going through puberty. Now, I did this because I'm really trying to move from that thoughts into actions, like how do I help my child? And this is a gender inclusive workshop and they do not separate children by um, assigned sex and they do not separate children by gender identity. Everyone has this workshop together, which I love. Fast forward, that's back in August, fast forward to January, Kobe comes home and he says, mommy, mommy, Sally started her period today. And immediately I wanted to tell Kobe, that is not your story to tell. But he just seemed so proud and happy that I'm like, there's something more to this story. So I was like, well, how do you know? Because that's something that's big, right? We always want to respond with curiosity with our children. So, well, how do you know? And he goes, well, we were in work time and I saw that she was bleeding. So I told her, hey, you started your period. And, and I go, oh, okay. I go, and then what happened? He goes, well, then Sally said, what's that? And so I told her what people who have uteruses have a period or a menstrual cycle once a month. And he goes, it's in preparation for whenever, if you choose to have a baby. And she's like, oh, so what do I do? And Kobe goes, well, my mom said that if I have a sweatshirt that I can give it to you, so do you want it? And she goes, no, no, I have one in my locker. Can you go get it? And he said, yeah. So he went, he got it. Um, and he just was like, just beaming from ear to ear about this experience. And I said, great. I said, okay, and then what did you do? And he was like, uh, we went back to work time. I said, okay, did you tell the teacher or did she go to the nurse? And Kobe, you know, just has this blank look on his face. And he was like, no, but I think we handled it really well without an adult. I don't, I don't think she had to. And I go, okay, well, step two, right? <laughs> There's this thing called feminine napkins and she can go. But I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sharing the story. I cannot remember now why I'm sharing this story. We're all about this mix between the interpersonal and the internalized and, and being advocates, I think is really, this is that interpersonal positive story, it sounds like to me. Uh, yes. And I'm over, now I'm over here. Like I had a point to my story and this <laughs> brain fog at its best. And I'm like, what, what was the driving point um, as it relates to interpersonal and internalized? Hmm. Well, I can make a, a, a different point that I, I don't think that I was on that path, but a different point is it's interesting the way that we can shape these conversations in our classroom, right? That when us as caregivers do that necessary work and then we send our children off into the world, that it helps the teacher then to create a more loving, inclusive classroom than what it could have been before, right? Because if we can all be honest, seeing someone bleed can be a scary um, experience. You're like, oh my goodness, are you okay, right? What we then have to think about is if I'm raising self-identified boys who aren't going to experience a period, I want them to feel comfortable and confident in what that is, right? I want them to have language for it, but I also want them to know how to support someone who's going through that if they were to ever witness. I don't want them to ever participate in making fun of someone, right? We, and we have those 
very clear, direct conversations. If you see someone who is bleeding, here's three things that you can tell them, right? And I want to remind you, it is never okay. Periods are something that are natural, that it happens to people, right? It's a way that some bodies work. You know, we work to have gender inclusive language in our household. And that's something I'm on the journey of learning myself um, and working with our children. But thinking about how schools, but then how society can be shaped when we do that necessary work as caregivers that then can inform those policies, right? So that children will start to identify like, hey, that's not fair. That's not right when you treat someone, um, when you mistreat someone. And I think that's a really crucial point there is that idea that our children witness so much. And I think that part of that activism is giving them those words and the tools to handle those situations when they're faced with them. Because I just go back to your first story that the origin, your origin story of this is you just think about how that little boy Noah internalized what happened instead of knowing he could say, well, please don't tell my friend to shut up. Like, Hey, just don't say that at all to children in a classroom. But the fact that it wasn't to him, if he had the tools to say, well, what did he do that I didn't do? What did, you know, what is going on here? We do, I would think that teacher, given how shocked she was when you asked, may have even had an epiphany moment even earlier and, you know, not requiring another educator who luckily, I mean, was the mother coming in, you had that expertise there. But I think about another mother who wouldn't have had that um, wherewithal. But if the rest of us are doing the work for our children to witness something, it is and say something, then it's true that just opens the doors to more conversations in a classroom setting, in a social setting, whatever it is that they're in at the time. Yes. So much of this work when you're starting off with your children is just noticing right? It's just being with your child and you're noticing, noticing differences. So if you go to different zip codes, you go to different playgrounds around town and you're just noticing like, oh, I noticed this playground doesn't have nets like our playground or gosh, I noticed this playground is really clean and their grass is cut and I don't see those huge fire ant hills, right? You're just starting to notice with your children and build awareness. And after you spend, you know, a year or two really noticing with your children, and following their lead, that's where you start to then really place blame on systems. And you start to hold those systems accountable, right? Wow, this isn't fair. You know, this community pays taxes like we pay taxes. Someone should be out here cutting their grass. If it's a private institution, we had went to a um, free STEM camp. They put on a free STEM camp uh, here in the city. Um, and when we were waiting for them to start, I said, hey, let's just notice who is here and who is missing. And so at the time, my children were probably seven and 12 years old. And right away, they, you know, start saying, gosh, it's a lot of boys here. I said, yeah, it is a lot of boys here. I wonder who's missing. And then they said, you know, almost everyone here is brown and black. That is curious. Very curious, right? Like, where are all of the white people? I ended up posting that in an Instagram story. And someone on the other side of town said, oh, my goodness, we're also at a free STEM activity. And she took a picture and she said, look what it looks like. And her free STEM activity was almost all white. 
And so those are things. And we like could have that conversation, say, this is curious. I wonder how the organizers could have built an integration, right? Diversity is by design. So then with our children, like we start brainstorming ideas, but we also, because we're anti-racist, we move to action. Hey, do y'all want to help me make an email? We can draft an email and send it to the folks and say, we want to give you some feedback. This is what we noticed, who was missing, who wasn't here. And here are some things we thought you could do better next time to ensure that there really was diversity. I love your curiosity questions. I'm just so taken with them in everything and asking, that's curious, like why, as opposed to, I know my inclination is to jump in with, well, this is what's happening. And this is, <laughs> so I know it's, it's a big step for me. And I've noticed it when I went through the book, I'm like, oh, okay, I can do that. Maybe um, it's, it's honestly, my first struggle is to even just step back and allow that curiosity and discussion to come out as opposed to wanting to just answer the question and know the answer and, and go on with it. But um, this actually, you know, it kind of relates here to, in my head, it related in a way and I'm, but it, it is a question. One of the things I hear a lot is, you know, you mentioning, okay, who's missing? So this story triggered for me, you know, who's missing? There's no white people who's missing. It's all white people. And on the other side of town, so many times, and this goes again to the kind of the not racist, whatnot, is this notion of colorblindness that people often talk about. No, 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 no. We need to be colorblind. And I've heard it said that people say, no, by even making these points, bringing it aware, you're contributing to the problem, which has never made an iota of sense to me. I have to admit it. I, I can't I want to explain it and I'm sure perhaps someone's listening saying, no, I feel that way and I can explain it better than you. And I'm sure you can because I don't get it. And, but I do think it's, I, I don't know how we get away from that view with people who really seem to believe that that is the way forward. So what is, I mean, when we talk about this and we want to move towards action, to me, the colorblindness is ignoring that structural racism. It's ignoring the fact that we live in a racist society. Um, as you mentioned, you look at outcomes, there's a difference. You can't turn your eyes and say, you know, no, but we can treat everyone the same now because we can't do to tons of history. And I, I realize this is very long-winded, so please forgive me, but I always think back to work I've done up here on um, many, many generations of trauma to um, First Nations, Métis, and Inuit people here in Canada. That is a, a massive issue that we have. And you can't erase seven generations of intergenerational trauma and oppression through colorblindness or through one generation of deciding we're just not going to care. Um, but how do you present that to, to children, but also to other parents? I mean, I feel like some of this activism has to be to other parents and speaking to them about these issues. Absolutely. And what's interesting is the colorblindness ideology really came out in response of the civil rights movement and the progress that the civil rights movement was making. Right. So knowing that we've not we haven't always subscribed to colorblindness in this country, um, even on Turtle Island in Canada. And so a couple things here. Number one, young children seeing children see color. And we know that like as parents, we know that. 
And we know that because it's one of the very first things we ask them to do around two or three years old is tell me what color this is, right? We are constantly quizzing them on the colors. We buy books that have colors. We tell them like, if you can tell me the color of this sucker, you can have it, right? Like I've seen it all. I've heard it all. I've watched it all as a teacher and then, you know, being in a mom group and all of those things. So we ask young children to identify color and we also ask young children to categorize color. If your child is in an early childhood setting in a preschool or daycare, they're most likely are also asking them to sort colors, right? Put all the reds over here, put all the blues over there. We also ask them to short shapes. We also ask them to you know, identify numbers. We ask them to identify a lot because categorization and identifying is healthy brain development. Okay, so that's one box, right? healthy brain development is happening. Another box that I want us to think about is that if we live in a racialized society and, and society is categorizing people, right? Our children then are also picking up on this categorization, this racialized categorization that is wrong and that's racism. That's different than seeing someone's color. And I think folks kind of conflate those two. So if no one is talking to our children about racism, then they're drawing inaccurate conclusions, right? They are for sure picking up stereotypes and microaggressions without our help. They need our help to actually dismantle the inaccurate conclusions that they're drawing. Colorblindness is really a person saying to their doctor, well, I hear what you're telling me as the problem. And what I'm telling you as the solution is I'm going to ignore it. That's really what colorblindness is in a nutshell, right? Your doctor has said, hey, this is what your test results say. And these are the things that I want you to do in order to help you live a healthier life, right? And the person says, mm, I'm going to disregard all of your years of expertise and medical advice. And I'm just going to do nothing. And I think that's going to make the problem better. because." what you're telling me is just too uncomfortable, right? That's really the root of colorblindness. And I think that if caregivers, if we're really, really honest with ourselves, we know that we would never tell a child to solve a problem by ignoring or avoiding it. Like never, right? We always tell kids, hey, I know, buddy, it's going to be really, really hard, but I know you can do it and I'm right here to help you, right? If you don't like something, if you don't like the way they're talking to you, if you don't like the way they're treating you, you're going to have to say something or have to do something, right? We can't just ignore it. We can't just avoid it. We can't just wish it away. That is not going to work. Trust me, if it did, I would do it with a stack of bills that I have on my bar right now. I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to avoid it. <laughs> it's okay. I'll all go away. But it won't. <laughs> it's um, a humorous story in my head about my husband who used to do that with a little uh, avoiding things till I went through the mail and was like, we have one from the tax people. It's been here. <laughs> Whatever. I um, thought you were innocent. Trust me, you can't do it. My husband loves to ignore the um, oil light change that comes on. I'm like, you know, I'll get in his car and like, wait, is your oil light changing? He's like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's going to be fine. Okay. Again, we're not <laughs> going to solve problems by, uh, by avoiding it. And I think the other thing to really drive home is as a person of color, as a black person, I am really proud of who I am. And a part of who I am is not just my skin color. It's not just the amount of melanin that I have, um, although I feel really good about those parts of me. But it's also a part of my heritage. It's a part of my cultural identity. 
And so when you say that you don't see that, it's really you saying once again, right, that we're erasing that part of me. And I am not at all ashamed of who I am, nor are my children. And so thinking about it also in that way of a way that we can connect with people. And I have a blog post on my website um, about talking with young children and, and building the vocabulary and building the stamina to discuss colors of brown, right? Like how do we read books with young children and say, ooh, I wonder, are they lighter than you or darker than you? Do they have more melanin than you or less melanin than you? You know, this is a deep brown or a rich brown or a light brown and really getting comfortable first with just describing browns and then talking about racialized identities right about six or seven years old because all of those have histories that come along with it. You know, I, I have to counter one thing you said, which is that we don't shy away from hard conversations with our kids. We don't tell them not to do stuff. I would say the opposite. I think a lot of our problems here is that families seem to struggle a lot with difficult conversations. And I see it just so much with families. They don't like to talk about sex. They don't want to talk about puberty. I mean, how many kids have no idea what's actually happening to their bodies over time? And I do wonder how much that plays into the struggle that families have to talk about racism, to talk about police violence, to talk about shades of brown, lighter, darker. I just think we live in a, a culture where on top of everything else, we are um, we find it very hard to be uncomfortable about anything. And so I know this isn't really countering your thought. It's just the idea that people do this. I just find yes. it difficult. And so, I mean, I do wonder how much of this stems from our fear of talking to kids about these issues. And I've been, you know, very open with my children about puberty and periods. My children have always known from the time I was, they were little, not I was little because they weren't around, but when they were little, um, I, they always knew I had my period. We've talked about it from a very young age on. And so when my daughter got hers, it was no big deal. She was just like, hey, mom, I got my period, told her younger brother, hey, I got my period now. And that was, you know, a lovely and he's like, okay, and just treats it as whatever. But I do see that that's a very difficult conversation for a lot of people. And I can only imagine talking about these other things. But so what do we tell families who are already struggling to have conversations about biology that they won't be able to ignore for long because it's going to happen to get into something as uncomfortable as their own privilege, um, as the harm coming to other groups that I think can also affect children as, as they think about it. How do we navigate that with other parents and also for the parents who are feeling that with their own kids? You bring up so many great points. I'm over here trying to write them all down on a sticky note so I don't have brain fog again, right? And I and and you hit the nail on the head that, that we have topics we've been socialized, right? We've picked up the idea that there are taboo topics. So I think what's one place to start with parenting partners is just start talking to your parenting partner and say, you know what? In my household, like just ask them, what were the taboo topics in your household? See where you have things that are aligned and start there. 
and see where things are like, no, I mean, my parents, we did talk about that, right? Or my grandparents, or I had an aunt that introduced me. So start with what were the taboo topics? Then move from there with your parenting partners first and say, okay, how are we going to address some of these topics? So for me, I was uncomfortable having conversations about puberty and biology and sex. And I was uncomfortable because I didn't know, to your point, I didn't know. I did not have an adult in my life that helped me to understand my body and the school system um, that I was educated in didn't help me. I at least knew enough that I could kind of identify some myths that were happening in my health class. But I mean, I, I remember we had a health teacher who brought in a quote unquote sex educator. And she let us know that basically if you got pregnant before you got married, that you and your baby would have an STD and your baby would be born blind. Like, and then showed us a picture. Are you kidding me? I promise you. Oh I promise. Overhead projector and then showed us a picture of a baby. And I did know at least enough because I also went to a high school that had a number of teen pregnancies that I was like, that's not right. Right. But I didn't have any advocacy skills that as we're talking about, I didn't know how to advocate. I didn't know how to raise my hand and say, that's just not true. Right. Or that I, I didn't have anything like that. So for me, my discomfort came from, I personally just didn't know. So when it was time for me to talk with my children, I started with the discomfort. I started with vulnerability and I said, Hey, we're going to start having conversations about puberty and about sex and about any kind of curiosity you have with your body. And I just want you to know I'm uncomfortable. And it's not because these topics are big or because they're scary. It's just because I don't know. And I'm going to learn right along with you. Right. So starting with vulnerability is really, really important. We're teaching our children, number one, mistakes belong here too. Number two, no one is asking you to be all-knowing of everything, right? And number three, most important is that topics in our household are not going to be taboo. That you have an adult that you can come to. I might not always know the answer, but we most certainly can figure it out. And then one of the activities um, we did in our house, and we still do in our house because I'm still on my journey of learning and unlearning, um, is that we will pick books out from the public library and I give them a stack of sticky notes. And I said, here you go, read the book. You can mark any questions that you have. I want you to mark anything that you're learning. I also want you to tell me what you already know. The already know is really important because sometimes they're like, oh yeah, I already knew that. And you're like, mm, how? Right, so then there comes a question of, oh, well, who told you, right? I want to see kind of like, who's that other person? Is it another nine-year-old friend or 15? We have a 15-year-old, a 15-year-old friend and the kind of what conversations are we having and all of that. Um, or it might be a trusted adult, right? My Our 15-year-old has had so many incredible conversations in his class. And he's like, oh yeah, Mrs. So-and-so or Mr. So-and-so. And I'm like, wow, your teacher's just doing an amazing job. That's so wonderful. So I think that's that's really important is it's okay for us to lead with our own vulnerability with our children and to model that for our children as well. And so I think about this from a race perspective, and that's really nice to hear as a white mother going in and being able to say, I don't have the answers to all of this. I do not know what we're going to learn as we go along this journey, but because I can't know it. 
that's not, you know, schools certainly didn't teach anything relevant. I mean, obviously, you know, when I went to school, history was very whitewashed. I mean, it still is in many places, but it mm-hmm. certainly was when I was young. And I I love that notion of just being able to start out with, I'm, I don't know. And I, it's uncomfortable to talk about. And some of these things I might be wrong about at the beginning too. You know, another thing that comes up and I know we're, we're getting close on time and there was so much we were going to talk about, but you're just, there's just so many avenues to explore and whatnot, but we can get to a couple. I'm going to try it here. One of the things that I have heard, because I've talked to families about this one-on-one, so I know it's an issue, is when someone has family members that are racist or make racist comments. I, you know, I never want to say they're wholly racist because, again, we have that image of, you know, the, the very interpersonal, intentionally malicious, as opposed to the internalized coming out in potential interactions or, or comments. And so many times people want to say something, but they're also talking to people that have wielded power over them their entire life, sometimes uncomfortable power, sometimes people that they have never been able to stand up to. And I think it's all well and good. The ideal is you're able to stand up, but so many of them don't want to model acceptance of those comments for their kids. They don't want the kids to hear this. And then just be like, oh, well, it's okay because, you know, grandma said it, grandpa said it, uncle Joe or great grandpa, whoever said it. How do we like it, it's we can't have a get out of jail free card. But they're also I mean, is there something to start? You know, we talk about the the trajectory here and this kind of path that people walk on. I know the end goal is to be able to say, hey, you know what? That's not right. And it's not right to talk about in front of my kids um, or not right to talk about, period. But no, you need to know this isn't it. What's that first step that gets people just going there so they don't fear that that end point is just too far away for them? Yes. Okay. I, oh gosh, you bring up so many great things that I, I, I want to touch on. Number one, I think the first step really is owning your own truth is really your first step, right? There's a couple things I want folks to understand about truth is that number one, speaking the truth is not divisive. And it also does not mean that you're creating a problem, right? I think sometimes we're like, oh, if I say something, I'm creating the problem. The problem is already there. You speaking the truth just says, I'm ready to reckon with a problem. I actually am ready to be a part of the solution. So that's really, really important. Something else I really want folks to understand about the truth is that your truth, your truth is really rooted in your values. And so getting clear about values also helps you then to connect with that family member. You might tell your you know, sibling, you might tell your grandmother, you may have a connected value of respect or a connected value of equality or a connected value of care. And so you can say like, hey, uh, Mima, I know that you raised me to respect people regardless of who they are. And so what you just said was not respectful, right? And so being able to connect with the value that you both hold and also speak your truth is really powerful. I want to share one of my very favorite resources with folks that you they can find online. And it's a free resource. And it is called Speak Up responding to everyday bigotry. It's by the Southern Poverty Law Center. 
And so I'll say it again. It's called Speak Up, Responding to Everyday Bigotry. But they have dozens upon dozens of different scenarios, but also solutions of how can I respond um, in a way that's going to feel good and affirming to me. Last thing I want folks to understand is that when you're newer to this work, even if you're seasoned in this work, sometimes moments are going to pass you by. And I want you to offer yourself grace. I was just talking to an uh, assistant superintendent the other day, and she said that someone, someone said something in a meeting and it caught her off guard. And before you know it, the meeting was over, the moment had passed, and now she's you know, kicking herself. Like, why didn't I say something? And she goes, what, what can I do? What can I do now? And I said, well, now you go home and you practice. Because here's the thing. We live in a racist society. That moment is going to come back. We don't have to feel like we have now missed our moment and it's never coming back. I hate to tell y'all, it's coming back, maybe in a different way, maybe through a different person in a different scenario, but it's coming back. So at this, home, this time we go home and we practice in the mirror, right? We practice saying, ouch, I heard what you said and I'm not for sure if you know that's really rooted in racism and I would love to share why, right? You practice the way that's going to feel good for you so that next time you can then just you already know what to do because it will already belong to you, right? Like you can just tap into that and say, oh, okay, I'm going to say something in this moment. The very, very last thing I want to say that I, I want to caution people about, particularly white folks, is don't wait to say something in closed doors. If you did, if you did say something in closed doors, you know, that happens. Otherwise, if we wait, we heard what our sibling said, we heard what our cousin said, and we didn't say anything. And then when we got in the car, we were like, oh my gosh, I can't believe they said that. And that was so racist and this, that, the other. What our children learned was, oh, so we can identify it, but we're not going to do anything about it. That's non-racism. Our children also learn to be performative. They learn then to post about it on social media. They learn to talk about it in private um, comforting circles, but they don't learn how to advocate against it, right? Our children really need us to model how do we advocate for who we are and our values. I love that. And that is such a great piece. And I'm wondering, I'm going back to what you said before about, um, you know, taking action post-hoc after that, that STEM workshop and maybe there is a way to bring the quiet out if you miss the moment. I'm thinking about missing the moment here and you feel like you want to do it is, you know, you might be able to say, okay, I was not, I missed the moment there, but I can send a message. Let's, let's write something to my, to, to grandpa, to grandma, to aunt Sue, to cousin, whoever, and say, you know, when you said this, it wasn't right. It wasn't fair just as a way to kind of take a bit of that moment back and provide an outlet. So it isn't just this performance piece that is we're talking yes. about it after, but we're able to, to do something forward going with it. Yes. And that's also a great solution too. If you find yourself very heated in the moment and you know that, you know, you're kind of are in a fight or flight stage. And so that's also great to say in the moment you can say what you said wasn't okay. 
but I know that right now I'm not in a space to talk about it. Let's just talk about it, you know, next week or another time or go for coffee. Your children also then are learning again. Like they're always watching us. They're always learning from us that, you know what? I said something, but it does not always serve us to say everything all the time, right? Sometimes we just, we need to take a beat, take a breath and that's okay too. Um, and even if later on, you know, you end up going and getting a coffee with your mom and you say, hey, mom, I want to talk to you, then you can come back and say, oh, I took my mom for coffee and we had a great conversation, you know, about this, that, the other, and I had brought that up to her because having compassion accountability is not about a gotcha moment. It's not about outing someone. It's not about, you know, catching someone off guard. It's not about any of those things are being right. Right. Compassion accountability is all about connection. How can I have a more loving, more meaningful relationship with this with my loved one? That's really what it is when we when we say those things, when we're correcting them. Right. When we're saying, hey, what you said, I don't know where you picked it up or I do know where you picked it up. Like I was a part of those jokes, too, growing up and we've pivoted and I want you to pivot, too. Right. And, and so having that um, and I have, a, I have a blog article called Critical Conversations. That's really I should have led with that one. That's going to be very supportive, too. Um, but having those values and then also being really comfortable with the truth, like we just have to get comfortable with the truth. I think that's kind of the overall theme in this conversation has been. Some of the truth is bringing us discomfort. So how do we get comfortable with that? Absolutely. And I will share, you know, in the show notes will be links to these articles and the speak up and everything. So we will have that there. You can easily click on it and go read more about it. And I know we're at time. Can I ask, do you have time for one more question, if I may? Because I know where we're at. Okay. One of the key themes throughout the book that comes up is community. And really having that community who shares the same values, the same ideals. You shared how you even upped and moved out of a community because <laughs> it was not um, supportive, which was like, wow, that's that's an amazing step that not everyone can take or would take. And so I am curious really for those who live in communities that don't, it may be, I mean, there's a, a variety. It may be that they don't foster inclusivity, et cetera, um, you know, diversity, inclusivity, equity. It may be that they live in very homogeneous groups, right? There are certain areas where there's just not necessarily a lot of exposure. There may not be blatant lack of caring about diversity, but it's just not practiced. And how do we navigate if you're parenting in those communities and you can't move and you know or or to be fair I think it's fair to say you know moving may not be an option for a variety of reasons that people may have how do you navigate the impact on your children of being in such a a, a lack of diverse environment and what are things that you can do to counteract that and work towards that anti-racism view as anti-racist parenting? Yes, this is a great question. And I agree with you. I don't, I don't think that moving is practical for everyone. Right. And I I think I even put in the book, I can't remember if I put it or not. I may have um, 
took it out. But I put at the time, we thought it was very radical, right? It, it was such an act of um, putting our values into action um, was important for us. And so, but I do hope that people hear that and say, wow, they got really creative with what they're willing to do. And I hope that other folks also think what is what within our resources is going to be um, just as creative. And so one thing um, I think we can do with our children is going to be this theme of being honest. Be really honest about the community that you do live in and start to research the history of that community. Diversity is by design. So if you don't have diversity in your city, it is by design, right? Segregation is also by design. So start to be really honest with your children. Again, going back to who is here and who is missing and why. I wonder if there's been any laws or policies or are there any current laws and policies that exclude people from our community? Um, in the United States, suburbs are really huge here and suburbs have been uh, manufactured historically, they were manufactured to support white flight and to support a middle class, a growing middle class, which then excludes a number of people, both socioeconomic status wise, but also racial, racially excluding people. Um, the other day I was on the phone with someone and she lives in the suburb and she goes, oh, that's odd. And I said, what? She goes, there's someone who's unhoused and they are here. And I live in a major metro city. So for me, I'm like, okay, well, what's unusual? And it took me a second. And I was like, oh, I get it. Because her city, what she's saying about her suburb is, and she's done a lot of work with her children. They have so many anti-homeless laws in place through their uh, municipality um, where you can be fined if you are feeding people at the park. They have all of this um, specific architecture that the city has built so that people cannot lay down on benches. It, it's just when you start to kind of go down these rabbit holes. So you can be really honest with your children and say, we are, lack diversity. This is the kind of diversity and these are the laws and policies that support it. But on the flip side, what I want folks to do is start to plug into virtual communities. There are so many incredible virtual communities um, across the world, right, in different time zones that you can start to plug into. And for us, even though we made the move here to Houston, Texas, uh, I really started this work both first online, right? And I found my people online. And then we started meeting once a year and co-creating those friendships. And Almost all of them now um, have been a contributing author in my book. The people that I brought into the book were folks that I built community with six, seven years ago um, that were raising children or were in the education sphere and working alongside me to figure this out. And so when I had the opportunity to write the book, I said, how do I make space to bring more people along um, and to bring my community along? I love that. It's, um, I will say one of the things that in case people are thinking of different ways, when you mentioned the online sphere, I am one of those people that lives in a place with a lack of diversity. And um, we found an online school for our daughter that um, has a lot of diversity in it. And that's what part of what we've enjoyed is in, in the curriculum is less whitewashed than others. There's a focus on teaching that my son starts it this year just because of his age. So he's also going to be going to the same, but that's why he's not there yet. Um, but 
it is one way if you're interested. I mean, there are alternatives to education online that are for homeschoolers if you can make that work. But I think the online sphere for all the the cons of social media, et cetera, there are certainly benefits that can can work towards that. So I, I thank you. This has been such an eye-opening conversation. And I mean, the book, I cannot tell you, it is so worth getting. And it really does. As I said at the beginning, you don't have to be overwhelmed. You can. And I, I admit I did get a little overwhelmed because I had to go through the whole book to make sure we could talk about stuff. But I was like, no, 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 no. You can go back and just take one section at a time. You can do this. Um, the little pep talks to myself. But that is it is so accessible. And it is so wonderful that you have put this together for parents because I do hope families want to take charge in this. I do hope they want to work towards it and know it's a long-term goal that, yeah, you know, our kids may be off at university by the time we really have felt comfortable doing all of this, because as I think we really hit home in this conversation, there's a lot of discomfort in a lot of it. Um, and there's a lot of discomfort in parenting. And, you know, when you add in all these things that <laughs> we we haven't had growing up, that's that's one of the things that we need to navigate. So, before we go, I mean, do you have any closing thoughts, final thoughts for anyone here as they embark on becoming anti-racist parents? Yes, you are not alone that you have thousands of other folks that are also participating in anti-racist parenting, folks who have read the book. So if you are on social media, if you're in a virtual world, um, connect with folks, right? Use hashtags like raising anti-racist children or anti-racist parenting and really start to build connection. You are not alone. And I know I said it earlier, but I just want to reiterate it. It's never too early to start and it is never too late to show up. That's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope that you found Britt's words helpful in your own journey towards raising anti-racist children and even just trying to change our society itself. I don't know when we'll be back, but we will. And in the meantime, stay safe and happy parenting.